encourage you to grab your Bible if you have it with you, or look at, on page six in your order of worship, actually not page six, page seven in your order of worship, and you'll see our text that we're going to be looking at today. We've been working our way through the book of Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he ministered in the 8th century B.C. to the northern tribe of Israel at a time where there was, had been incredible prosperity, wealth, but that it was beginning to crumble. They were facing threats from the surrounding nations. They were facing threat from Assyria. And now, as people were worshiping false gods, they were worshiping Baal, the god of the Canaanites, looking to Baal for their, the growth of their crops, for, for sustenance. And, and God is sending Hosea to proclaim the word of the Lord to God's people. But he did it in a way that, that was extremely difficult, was at great cost to himself. Because we saw in chapter 1 that, that God told Hosea to take a wife of whoredom. That's the, the language of the text, that, that he was to take a wife, knowing in advance prophetically that she would be unfaithful, that she would be an adulteress. And God said, you're to marry her anyway, because that is what I have done with Israel, that I made this covenant bond with Israel, knowing all along that they would be unfaithful. And I want your marriage, Hosea, to be a reflection of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the restoration and the judgment that will fall on Israel. And so he obeyed the Lord. He entered into this marriage. That was chapter 1. He had children. The first child, uh, Jezreel, was a biological child. And we, we said that, that his name had this dual meaning. It was both judgment on Israel, but also eventual restoration. And then he had two children who, as the text hints, were not his biological children. Um, no mercy, who would become mercy and not my people who would become my people. And so even his children then became these signs, both of this doom, this judgment that was coming on the people for their sin and their idolatry, but then also the eventual restoration and hope and, and promise. And then last week we saw in chapter 2 that the, the story of Hosea in a way went to the background in the narrative, that it was now Israel as the bride on the center stage, it was God as the, the bridegroom, as the, the husband. And it was this very dramatic, difficult passage of a trial for adultery. But in the, the courtroom, it wasn't an earthly courtroom. It was a heavenly courtroom. And Israel was there with the, the children of Israel testifying against her for her unfaithfulness. And we talked about these judgments that came through. Therefore, judgment. And then we had another therefore with more Judgment, And then we said this final judgment, this final therefore, which you see in the printed in the bulletin in verse 14. So you think this is where the final shoe is going to drop. It's going to be judgment. And they've laid out all of this evidence against Israel. And surely God is going to, to cut them off. He's going to no longer have any mercy. But then all of a sudden he says, I will allure her. And, and then all of a sudden this whole vista of promise and hope and restoration comes into the text. And and that's where we stopped, was just as we were entering the good news. And today, though, and into next week, we have this unusual section in Hosea where, where there's no judgment, that this is all promise, all 
good news just flowing out of the goodness and the mercy of God to his people. And so I'm going to pick up reading in verse 16. In your, in, if you have your, your Bible, again, I would encourage you to, to follow along. So, so Hosea chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you, Israel, God's people, will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lay down, lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we explore this passage of hope and promise. We pray that, that we would see these promises not as abstract truths, but as truths that are for us in Christ, that we would see ourselves as the, the covenant people grafted in, as not my people becoming my people. And so, Father, we pray that, that this text would strengthen us to have more hope, more confidence in your promises than we had earlier this morning to carry us through the rest of our day, our week, and our lives. So, Lord, open our minds and our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you look at our text today, you know, verse 16, you see this phrase, and in that day. You see the same phrase down in verse 21, and in that day declares the Lord. So this phrase is, is repeating, but you, you look at it and you say, well, what day is this talking about? Well, it's the day that was being described in the verses before this day of restoration, of hope, of promise. And it was a day that was future from the perspective of the Israelites who originally received these words from Hosea. Now, this whole passage would have been a future promise from their perspective. But as we'll see as we walk through this verse by verse, section by section, that it's actually future from our perspective as well. That this 
passage has not been fully realized. It's not been fully brought to bear in the world. And this is often true in the prophets, that as you read Old Testament prophets, um, it helps to know that, that when they're looking at the future, it's this horizon before them that, that sometimes includes the coming of Christ, sometimes includes the second coming of Christ in glory, sometimes it's talking about the, the restoration of Israel, sometimes it's talking about the, the new heavens and the new earth. And from their perspective, looking future, it's like the wall of mountains when you're in the valley. And as you approach, you start to see the valleys and the hills. But again, this is the picture of hope. This is the hope for them. And this is the hope for you and me as well, for, the, for God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we see the hope here in four promises. And we're going to walk through these promises because these promises were for them back in the Old Testament, but these promises are for us as well as the covenant people of God. And so here's the first promise. And it's restored orthodoxy for the people of God. Restored orthodoxy. And look at this restored orthodoxy in verse 16 again. It says that in that day, and this is really the day after the second coming of Jesus, it says, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Now, I use the word orthodoxy, and to some that's a familiar term, to some it's, it's not, but the, the word comes from two Greek words, orthos, which means right or straight, uh, and doxa, which means belief, among other things. And so really orthodoxy is, is right belief. And you can think of the word orthodontics, that's about right, straight teeth. Uh, that orthodoxy is about right, straight doctrine. And it's not just doctrine in a formal academic way. But orthodoxy, in the truest sense, is about the right thoughts about God, right words about God, that flow into right actions that reflect who God is. And so when we talk about orthodoxy, it's thinking in a way that reflects the reality of who God is and how he has revealed himself in the Bible. It's, it's speaking accurately about God that reflects the teaching of Scripture. And then it's actually living out those truths in daily life. Now, for the time of Hosea, orthodoxy, doctrine was in complete shambles. That the thoughts that Israelites had about God were not right. Their words about God were not right. Their actions flowing out of that were not right. Uh, they may have confessed Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they were unclear. They were confusing, mixing categories, saying things about Yahweh that were actually true about Baal, uh, the God of the Canaanites, saying things about Baal that were true about Yahweh. Um, and so it's really what you call heterodoxy, hetero for other. And so it's, it's not orthodoxy, straight, right doctrine, but heterodoxy. That's what they were facing at the time of Hosea. And so the prophets then, like Hosea, were called to proclaim orthodoxy to the people of God, to, 
to call them back to the written word of God. Here are the right thoughts about God. Here are the right words about God. Here are the right actions that that flow out of those right thoughts and right actions and and trying to call people back to holiness of of life and word and and doctrine. But of course, the, the prophets, more often than not, in their own lifetimes, they had a failed mission that there were little pockets of renewal or or reformation, but overall they saw a continual decline of orthodoxy at their time, leaning into captivity in Assyria and then to Babylon, that this this longing for for right thoughts about God, right belief, right words, right lives, that it was what what you call underrealized, that it never came to fruition, that it was never brought to bear in the world. And even after restoration from Babylon, it was restored slightly, but we know at the time of Jesus, when he came, once again, orthodoxy was in shambles. There was legalism. There was false teaching among the religious establishment that even in the restoration of Israel at that time, it didn't bring the fullness of right belief, right words about God. But what we see here then is a promise, and a promise that hasn't even come true in the church, that the church today is still riddled with right beliefs, right words about God that reflect who God has revealed himself to be, and wrong words and thoughts and and actions, that it's a mixed bag. But the promise here is this day where it says that people will confess the name of God truly, that they'll no longer use the wrong words about God. They'll say that God is my husband, that that I'm in a covenant relationship to God. They're no longer going to call God my Baal. Uh, They're no longer to confuse him with other concepts. And the word Baal at the time literally meant strength. And so if you said, my Baal about God, it was actually technically true that you could say God is my strength. But the word had become so mixed up with idolatry and false teaching that you couldn't say, my Baal about God, my strength, without pulling in all kinds of false belief and false ideas and false words about God. And so God is saying here that that that's not going to be the case anymore, that there will come a day when it will be the right words. And it's not just the name of Baal as this ancient deity of Mesopotamia and uh, the Judean countryside, but it's talking about something more, that, that this is the promise of complete, full, right orthodoxy, right belief. And I don't know if... if all of you feel the weight of that as much as even we should. That, that Just imagine that, to, to, to not have wrong ideas about God and about the, about the world that so often characterize us. To be on the, the same page when it comes to God, how beautiful and how amazing that would be. To, to long for that, to, to hope for that. Because in this life, yes, we're, we're always seeking to conform our life more and more to Scripture, but it's not complete in this life. I mean, I could see that as I look back over my own life over the past 15 years, that I don't believe the exact same things about God, that there's been refining of language about God, words about God, thoughts about God. And, and hopefully that's something that we're all doing, that as we're reading the Bible, we're discovering, I didn't know that about God, or I misunderstood that about God, or I'm going to be able to speak more truly, or I'm going to be able to believe more truly, or live more truly from the, from the word of God, that we're constantly works in 
process being reformed according to the word of God. And that's actually one of the sayings of the Protestant Reformation, which was Ecclesia Reformata Sempre Reformata. It's Latin, but it means the church reformed, always reforming. And the idea is it's the church reformed, that there's this, this reformation of doctrine that has come to the church at various times. And we rejoice in the doctrine that has been recovered from the Reformation, but the idea is it's the simpra reformata, that it's, it's always reforming, that, and it, that we're always trying to refine more and more, be more and more faithful, more and more true to, to Scripture, to be more and more accurate. And it's not accurate in, in a way of, I'm right, you're wrong, but more of, I love God so much that I want my words to be true and to reflect who he really is and who he has revealed himself to be. But again, it's, it's not complete, but what we have here is a picture, a promise. One day it will be full, that we'll behold God with unveiled faces, that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another, that, that our ideas of God won't be complete. We won't know everything about God because he's infinite, and even in heaven we'll have finite minds that can't contain the infinite, but it'll be true to who he is. It won't misrepresent and then it'll be expanding this true knowledge infinitely for all time because you can always go deeper, but it'll be true reflection of God's self-revelation. That is the promise, the hope held out here in this first promise. Restored orthodoxy for the people of God. But there's a, a second promise here as well as we continue in the text that we see next, restored security for the people of God restored security. Look at verse 18. God continues, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Just as a parenthetical note, it's really interesting in this whole section how it keeps switching the pronouns for Israel and for the people of God. Sometimes it's you, sometimes it's them, sometimes it's her. Uh, that I mean, the English majors would go nuts in the way <laughs> that it keeps changing how it's talking about them. But it's true. It's representing all these different aspects of who they are as the people of God. But, but what is this promise saying here in verse 18? That it's this future day of restoration. And, and it's saying that in that day, when all things are made right, when, when it's a new heavens and new earth being established, that God will make a covenant with the beasts of the field. And it goes through the, all the words of creation from Genesis of the animals, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the, the creeping things on the ground. And it's saying that the, all of these creatures that came in creation will, will live in harmony and peace with humanity, that it won't be that the, the animals will destroy the crops or, or kill the livestock or, or kill the people. And if you think about this from an ancient perspective, this would be good news. And I, I think we miss it somewhat from our perspective in the modern world. But even where I grew up in Colorado, they've been reintroducing wolves in the last few years. And at first, I mean, I think that's a good thing, but everybody thought, oh, that is just completely good. There's no downsides. But then you reintroduce wolves, and now the wolves are killing the sheep and, and killing the animals and killing pets. And, and people will say, whoa, okay, so 
these, these, nature can be dangerous, that, that there can actually be threat to humanity from nature. And this is what has been true in the world since the fall of Adam and Eve, since the, the enmity with creation that entered the world. But it would have been felt even more for ancient people where their crops would be attacked by locusts, their animals would be attacked by wild animals. Even in 2 Kings 17, it says that after the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria, God actually sent lions and wild animals that ravaged the land and caused a lot of problems. And so this is this promise of that won't be the case anymore. No more threat from the natural world upon humanity. No more destruction of crops. No more violence. That that will be put to an end. It would be a great comfort. But then there's actually a greater comfort in this promise as well. That he says that, yes, there's security from the natural world, from the animal kingdom, but there will also be security from war and violence. He says, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And this probably was the, the greatest comfort thus far in this passage, because at the time where people were saying, we're going to be invaded by Assyria, they're going to kill our children, they're going to destroy everything, we're going to be attacked by Babylon, they're going to, to ravage the land to say, don't worry, Israel, there will come a day when that will end, when that will not be the case. And people would say, wow, that's amazing. God will eventually do away with war and violence and pain in the world. And I think that that's a promise that we can latch on to as well, just as much as people in the ancient world. Over the past week, we've seen violence in Israel. We've seen a, a devastating cyber attack. We've, we continue to see threats from North Korea or Russia or Iran or China, or you could go down the list of, of nations that even in our modern world, it may not be Babylon, it may not be Assyria, but there are still threats. As much as we want to feel secure, we recognize that there is not true security in this life. We're never perfectly safe. We're never perfectly at home in a way that nothing can touch us and nothing can hurt us, that, that we are in danger to one degree or another from violence or extremism or terrorism, that these things, even when we, we don't realize, it could crash into our lives at any moment, and we don't know. And so there's this temptation to, to try to, to look and try to manufacture an artificial security in our lives, to trust in the security of, of our world or our officials. And it's good to work for security, and we're thankful for those who do. But it's not ultimate, that we can't expect too much from this life and this world, that we are sojourners in a difficult, hard, violent world. And we will never in this life see perfect peace or a perfect end to war or a final war to end all wars because we're not a redeemed humanity yet, that there's still violence and hatred in the human heart. But what we're seeing here is this promise of no more war, no more violence, which if you go deeper, that means no more sin, no more hatred, no more enmity, no more racism, no more pain. It's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the promise for us to hold on to here in our text, the second promise.
But now let's look at a, a third promise. So we've said restored orthodoxy, restored security. And the third is restored intimacy for the people of God. Look at this restored intimacy in verse 19. It says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, intimacy is the, the great longing of the human heart, that, that we long to be fully known and fully loved at the same time for connection, for relationship. But then we have this, this fear, this dread deep in our heart that if we were ever fully known, truly known, that we wouldn't be fully loved. And so what we do then as humanity is we try to set up this artificial intimacy where we exchange fleeting pleasures or fleeting relationships and we call it true intimacy. Uh, but it's intimacy where we can protect and hold at bay really being fully known because we know that if we're fully known, we might be rejected. But God recognizes this in his mercy, this desire for intimacy in a good sense and in a bad sense that we, we try to live for. And what God does is he offers us true, deep, lasting, abiding intimacy with himself. And he uses this word betroth, a very intimate word. He will betroth himself to us. And, and look at how he will do this. It's, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. And this is forever. It's permanent. It's lasting. That even the best human relationships, even the most uh, glorious intimacy we can experience in this life is temporary. It can be shattered by the decision of others or by death. But this relationship with God is, is better than any human relationship because it's eternal, it's lasting, it's true. But then God continues. He says, the second betroth, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And of course, we live at a time in a, in a world where, where intimacy can then be perverted where instead of being righteous, it's unrighteous. Instead of being just, it's unjust. And instead of being steadfast love, it's selfishness. Instead of being mercy, it's cruelty. And this is what you see in the, the counterfeit in, in intimacy of adultery or of pornography or sexual immorality uh, that it doesn't offer, that it ends up becoming unjust and unrighteous and, and cruel and selfish. But that's not what we see from God here. This is the, the ultimate form of love and betrothal, that it's, that it's in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, all these things that we long for, true justice, that this is what is displayed that characterizes this betrothal. But then finally, look at the third betrothed. He says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Again, the betrothal or intimacy or relationship in this life can be faithful, and it's wonderful when it is as a picture of what God does for us. But again, we know that it can be shattered by unfaithfulness, by adultery, by 
betrayal, that, that human intimacy doesn't line up to this because it falls short of faithfulness. But God's relationship with us is faithful, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never give up on us, that even when, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so you see then in all these words that, that Christianity isn't just about rules, it's about ceremony, not just about ceremonies. If you're in the Christian world very long, you, you hear people say it's about a relationship with God. And that is just profoundly true, and it's what is being described here. This is ultimate relationship with God. This is not the unmoved mover. This is not the, the impersonal God in the sky. This is not the God that you can't know or you can't have a relationship with. But this is the God of goodness and righteous and justice who then actually pours these things out into us and upon us as we enter into a relationship with him. That he says that he, he betrothes himself to us in righteousness and justice. But then when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we are counted righteous through the righteousness of Christ. And it's injustice because we are justified, declared just through the blood of Jesus. But then as we walk through our Christian life, he begins to work this in us by his grace that he betrothes himself in steadfast love, but then he works steadfast love in us so we can love God and we can love others. And, and he works mercy in us so that we can extend mercy to others. And he begins to work faithfulness in us so we can be faithful to our friends or our family or our church or our spouse or whatever it is. And we, we don't do these things perfectly, but God begins to work it in us by his grace. But then the ultimate picture here is this, this final marriage of Christ and the church, uh, where it's all perfected, um, where we have the full experience of this intimacy, this relationship with God. And it's what John describes in Revelation 21. He says that, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That that is relationship, intimacy with God that he offers to us in Christ. That's the, the third promise here in our text. But then the, the final promise, number four, is restored abundance for the people of God. So we've said it's restored orthodoxy, restored security, restored intimacy, and restored abundance for the people of God. Look at verse 21. In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now at first, the, the language here is a bit confusing. It kind of threw me when I first started studying this passage, but what's being described here is the full agricultural cycle 
in the, in the land. And most often, from, we, we start with our, with our felt need. And so we say, I need abundance. And that's being described here as grain and wine and, and oil. Um, I need the things of this life. And so then we look to the ground and we say, earth, ground, produce these things, grow for us. And then it, this is image of the ground then looking to the heavens saying, heavens rain on me. But then behind it all is the heavens looking to God as the foundation saying, God, give rain to the land. So all the abundance flowing down from God. But what we see here is, is this placed in its theological order with God at the starting place. Not us at the starting place, but God at the starting place. And, and it flows in the actual order of reality. That, that is God answering the heavens which give the rain, which give the grain and the wine and the oil, which grow up and provide this abundance to the people of God. And then you see this play on words again that the sun Jezreel was also a location. This was judgment. Uh, that it's a play on words because in Hebrew the Jezreel has the root of to sow. And you see that it, it says that they shall answer Jezreel and I will Jezreel, I will sow her for myself in the land. That there will be this turning back of the name to to have this, this plenty, this abundance. There's no lack. There's, there's no need. And that would have been a comfort way back at the time of Hosea. True abundance. No more famine. No more lack. No more poverty. But it's a great promise for us as well in our world that we may have more abundance than they did at the time of Hosea. That we have, we have iPhones and computers and lights and commercial food. But yet we still see that it's, that it's fragile, that we, we see that there's, there's starvation, there's privation, there's exploitation, there's homelessness, there's need, that the world is not the way that it, that it should be, that, that, that this cycle of provision from nature is not always com a complete cycle, that we don't always have everything we need, that, that is so fragile, and that politicians will say, look to me and I will give you this cycle, but they can't do it because they can't ultimately answer the heavens like God can. And the, you, you'll look to any kind of human authority saying, look to me for provision, but it's saying, no, look to God ultimately, to the promise of when all of this will be made right, there'll be no more lack, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more need, all complete. And then the final promise in, in the end of verse 23 that God says, I will have mercy on no mercy. will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That that is the, the essence of our hope as believers. If you want to say, what is Christianity about? This, that's what it's about. Verse 23. That, that we are the people. We are no mercy. We didn't deserve mercy. We didn't deserve grace. That we deserve the opposite. That we deserve judgment. But God was merciful on us in sending Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. That we were not my people. Uh, we, we were, so many here were, for the most part, Gentiles. We're not my people. But even beyond that, we are part of sinful humanity, born in Adam, alienated from God because of our sin. And God says, no, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you in. And that's exactly what Jonathan read for us from Romans chapter 9, where is this picture of God creating an elect people for himself from Jew and Gentile, uh, vessels, he said vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, but also vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called. And, and then 
The Apostle Paul quotes the promise here from Hosea chapter 2, referring to the church, Jew and Gentile, showing that all of these promises, that everything we've been talking about is, is for you, it's for me, it's for the people of God, and that we are the ones who can say to God, you are my God. And that's just the question that I want to, to leave you with today. Is that, a, is that what you can say to God? Can you say to God, you are my God? Not just you are a God among many, not just you are the God of, of someone else, but you are my God. And that is only possible because of what we see symbolized and sealed here in this meal, that, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's coming again. He's offering the promise of forgiveness through repentance and faith. And it's all so that we can say to God, my God, this intimacy, this relationship, this promise of restoration that we see here in this meal. Now, 